1998, I got an autoimmune blood disorder for which I had to be hospitalized for about a week. Uh, at the time, I didn't have any health insurance. We were living in England, and we were under their national health care system. They provide that even for visiting students and their families, kindly enough. Uh, but I didn't find out in England that I had a blood disorder. I was home in the States uh, during Christmas break and realized that something wasn't right and went to the doctor, and they did numerous tests. Later that day, the doctor called with results for my blood work and told me I had to get to the hospital immediately and told me if I got in a car accident on the way, I'd probably die. Uh, so I said, oh, I can't go to the hospital. I don't have insurance. He said, you don't understand. You're going to die if you don't get to the hospital. You have to go to the hospital. We'll worry about the money later. So I went, and like I said, I was treated at the hospital for a week and then with some medicine outside of the hospital for over the next few months. Eventually, everything was fine with my body. Don't worry. I got healed, got fixed. But I had a hefty bill at the end, and I wonder if we would be paying on this bill for decades but then a kind rep from the hospital came by and met with us, and after hearing that we had zero income as, as a poor graduate student, she said that the state of Michigan would take care of our bill. We didn't deserve that. I sure didn't pay enough into the system over the years to, to warrant getting that kind of gift in, in just a, a second like that. But I sure was needy. I was broke with a wife and a baby, and no job. Now, there are two extreme views of government assistant programs. One would be to think that they're just a right, a God-given right, and that it's pure injustice when you're turned down for this, this program or this benefit that you think you should get, or, or when a certain benefit will come to an end. Another extreme would be to think that assistance from the government is simply for those who refuse to work and are content to take and take and take, to smugly think that you'd never take any help from the government. One extreme doesn't recognize grace as grace. The other extreme doesn't know anything about desperate need. Well, regardless of your politics whether you lean toward big government or small government. That's not my point this morning. Perhaps that's just a useful analogy for us to begin to think about our beneficent God, about our need and how great it is and how much he helps, how great his benefits are. He offers perfect benefits, complete benefit package, these are undeserved benefits. He only asks that we recognize our need and ask him for it, for them. And they're unchanging benefits. Unlike whatever benefits you might have right now with the government or with your work, they change. Right? Every year, sometimes you, you have a, a new insurance plan or you you know, lose dental or you gain dental. It's always changing. A new president will come in and you'll perhaps gain some benefits or lose some benefits. But with God, his benefits are always the same. 
They're rooted in himself. That's what we see in Psalm 103. Let's look there and read the psalm together. It's written by David. And David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. But as for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. Its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. Obeying the voice of his word, bless the Lord all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, that's God's word for us today. You may have noticed that Psalm 103 begins and ends the same way. It's sometimes called book ending. In Hebrew poetry, they would put the same theme at the beginning and at the end to tell you what the whole thing is about. So this is a psalm on blessing the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Notice that David is speaking to himself when he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself. Yeah, at the end, he'll call on angels to bless him, all creatures to bless him, for all of God's works to bless him. But he starts with himself. He's reminding himself of truth. He's telling himself what he knows to do, but maybe doesn't or doesn't feel like it. It's this concept we've called before, preaching to yourself. Psalm 42 and 43 Show this so well. That's probably the best place you see this concept of preaching to yourself. You can go listen to that message online if you'd like, or read that psalm if you're not familiar with it. That's the best psalm for preaching to yourself, but anytime the psalms say, Oh, my soul, they're doing the same thing. It's preaching to self. It's stirring up the self. So David here is refusing to let circumstances or distractions, 
or bad thoughts or bad people dictate his, his mind and his heart. And he's arguing with himself a bit, piling up the reasons, piling up the arguments, piling up all of God's promises, piling up all of God's attributes, piling up all of God's benefits. So that he says, let all that is within me bless his holy name. Let every bit of my fiber bless his holy name. Let head stir up thoughts and mind be excited in such a way that my whole being is one of praise. Not just my lips, not just my hands, not just in bowing before him. But let my, my muscle fibers, the heart itself, let everything that's in me bless his holy name. Like Psalm 34 Or there, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. You see David saying, God's praise has got to spread. It's got to get more consuming. More consuming in the space of time. More consuming in our very beings. And one of the ways this happens is by what it says in verse 2. Not forgetting all of his benefits. Forget not... All his benefits. Oh, how forgetful I am. Oh, how blind I am to blessings. Oh, how easy it is to enjoy something and not enjoy it to the glory of God. Simply to enjoy it to the glory of self, to the glory of satisfaction. Maybe to enjoy good food, the glory of the food. There's a way to enjoy an enchilada to the glory of the enchilada. It's just a, mmm, that's good, and that's where it stops. But there's a way to enjoy good-tasting food or a million other of God's gifts as worship. It's got to go vertical. We have to connect it to him. Not just enjoy his benefits, but forget not all of his benefits. Forget not all the ways in which he's giving it to us. And he's good to us in it. So from there, the rest of the psalm, verses 3 and following, is really a catalog of several of the Lord's benefits. What David's doing here is giving us an example of how to count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. We can think of his benefits in ten different categories. There are really more, but I'll limit it to ten this morning. The first is that he forgives. Forget not this benefit. Verse 3, he forgives all your iniquity. Notice this is top of the list. Maybe you're in the habit of once a year doing a, a, a Thanksgiving list. You'll write down things you're thankful for. Maybe... After Thanksgiving meal, you have the family tradition like we do of going around in a circle and everyone saying things that they're thankful for. You're counting your blessings in many ways. David does that, but he puts forgiveness at the top of the list. I mean, there are other good gifts, right? There are other good benefits the Lord gives us. But David sees this as as paramount. The Hebrew... This word forgiveness or forgives is a specific word. It's not the general word for forgiveness, not the the typical word for forgiveness. This word here is a pardon from a king. 
So imagine you're, you're guilty of treason. You're arrested, you're bound, you're headed for the gallows. And the king gives you a pardon. What a great thing. Presidential pardons are funny things to me. Apparently, a president at the end of his term can just let some guilty guys go free if their crimes weren't too bad and weren't too famous. He likes them. He can just say, ah, go on, get out of here. But can the guilty just go free with God? Is that what it means here by forgives? He forgives all your iniquity? Not some, but all. He just, he just removes the debt? Can God just let the guilty go free? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. And we'll come back to that later on. But let's move on. The rest of verse 3 says, secondly, he heals. He forgives, verse 3 And verse 3 also says that he heals. He heals all your diseases. Now, I don't think this is a promise that God will heal any and all disease. In point of fact, he hasn't. Disease exists. Sicknesses and aches and pains exist. You can pray for them. We should pray for them. He sometimes does heal. But he doesn't heal all your diseases. And yet, this verse says, he heals all your diseases. So what does it mean? Well, I think it means that all diseases which are healed are ones which he has healed. It's pointing to the fact that he is the only healer, just like he's the only forgiver. He's the one who gives life and gives more life. He's the one who gives us a law, and so he's the one who can grant forgiveness from the violation of that law. He heals. Don't forget his benefits. Thirdly, don't forget that he redeems. He redeems. He redeems your life from the pit, verse 4 says. That's not referring to the UNM stadium. He redeems your life from the grave. He redeems your life from, from death. Now, again, he doesn't always do this. He's not saying that no one ever dies or anyone who claims this verse will never die. No, David died. He wrote it. But he also knows that the Lord often puts us really close to the pit and then pulls us back. The Lord keeps us from the pit time and time again more than we know. Who knows how often and in what ways God keeps us from death or protects us from things. His providence is magnificently mysterious. Many of us can even testify that we were once close to death. You were almost on your deathbed. The doctor said, you should have died. We don't know. We don't get it. And he redeemed you from the pit. Don't forget it. Forget not any of his benefits. Don't forget, fourthly, that he renews. He renews, verse 5 tells us. He's the one who satisfies you with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Not only does he protect, not only does he sometimes pull us right from the, the snatch of the pit and death itself, but he, on a daily basis, gives us good things, good food. He provides for us. 
And it's not just that it satisfies our belly so that we don't die. It satisfies our mouth. It satisfies our heart. He both sustains and he satisfies. And he does it in, like we saw last week, in intricate and intimate ways. He provides for his creation, not from afar, not with a, not with a, a clock that's been wound up and placed on the mantle, now just operating on certain systems of its own. No, he's intimately involved in bringing water to a wild donkey, Psalm 104 said. And how much more you? He satisfies you with good things. So give thanks when you, when you eat. Give thanks the meal that's before you. Give thanks for his provision and his care. Give thanks when you can cash a check. It's not just because of your hard work that you have that, but in him we live, move, and have our being, and every gift that we have is from him. It's from above. Don't forget it. He's the one who keeps you going, renews you like the eagle. Fifth, he rescues. He rescues, verse 6 says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now, when David talks about justice for the oppressed here, I think he has something specific in mind. I think he has the Exodus story in mind. The second book of our Bibles, that story of Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness being rescued from the oppression of Egypt and Pharaoh and the slavery there. Of course, God, in various ways, brings justice and righteousness for the oppressed. Of course, eventually, there will be an ultimate justice. There will be an ultimate ultimate freedom from oppression for his people. But here, I think he has in mind the Exodus story. Because notice verse 7, he talks about Moses. Right after he says, justice for the oppressed, verse 7 says, he made his way known to Moses. Verse 8 is a direct quote from Exodus 34, 6. Now, we'll come to both of those verses in just a minute. Verse 7, verse 8. Notice verse 6. It's a reminder of that overarching theme of the Exodus story where God worked powerfully, wonderfully, gloriously, miraculously. And God can do that at any time. He is a God who rescues. And often he rescues in providence. Often he rescues from behind the scenes. Often he rescues using people and means. But he rescues. It's who he is. Don't forget it. Sixth, he reveals. Verses 7 and 8 tell us that he reveals. Verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. It's his very nature to reveal himself. He's a talking God, a communicating God. He revealed his ways to Moses, both in the stories and in direct speech to Moses in the book of Exodus. And one of those is right there in verse 8, a quote from Exodus 34. Verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now turn back to Exodus 34 to see this. We're frequently turning back to Exodus 34. 
We're frequently turning back to Exodus 34 because it becomes such a paramount passage for the rest of the story of God's revelation, for the rest of the Bible. So it's not just Psalm 103 that quotes from Exodus 34. There are maybe 50 or 75 different allusions to Exodus 34. And the reason is because it's where God gave his fullest name. A few months back, we talked about this on a Wednesday night, where God reveals his name to Moses. Here, this is Moses asking for God's glory, to see God's glory. And of course, God says, Moses, you see my glory, you'll die. But here, go in the cleft of the rock, I'll shield you, and I'll pass by, and then I'll remove my hand, and you'll see the backside of the tail end of the comet of my glory. And he also says, as I pass by, I will proclaim my name. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here's God's long name. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we could keep reading. We'll stop there. Now think about this. Why does David go back to the Exodus story? It seems like he began Psalm 103 thinking about his own experience. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not any of his benefits. Surely he means the benefits to him, to himself, David. Yeah, but he goes back to the Exodus story, not because he has directly benefited from that necessarily, but because the Exodus story is especially instructive and motivating because there are two wings to the whole book of Exodus, or the Exodus story. One wing is that the people forgot God's benefits. Over and over again, he showed his power, he rescued them, he provided for them, and they forgot. They murmured, they complained, they doubted. They would rather go back to Egypt, they would rather die than go on. They even made false gods. That's one wing of the plane in the Exodus story, but the other is that God repeatedly demonstrates that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Oh, I know there are times where God takes out 3,000 at once. Right? Sometimes they get a disease. Sometimes snakes kill them. Sometimes the ground swallows them up. There are times where God disciplined his people. He said, enough's enough with some of you. But it's amazing how long it took for him to get there. It's amazing how long he warned before that came. It's amazing not that some were taken out in his just judgment. It was amazing that so many remained. It's amazing how patient he is. That's why David goes back to the Exodus story. They forget God's benefits. 
And God, in the face of it, is repeatedly merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And David doesn't want to do what they did and forget God's benefits. He wants to, he wants to remember all of his benefits, especially his steadfast love. That phrase, steadfast love, is four times in Psalm 103. The phrase is 123 times in the Psalms. You might know, you might have heard us talk about it before, that it comes from a rich Hebrew word, chesed. It's all through the Old Testament, not just the Psalms. It has implications in the New Testament. As I said, we spent, we spent a, a Wednesday night on this word and what it means from Exodus 34 and the rest of the Bible just, just a few months ago. So at the risk of redundancy, let me remind you what I said there, giving a definition of this rich Hebrew word that's associated with God's character and his commitment to his people. Chesed is God's gracious character. An attitude and commitment which arises out of God's relationship with his people. It, it means that he's bound himself to them. It's not duty, but it leads to his deep, enduring commitment to be their God and to do them good. It's not merely an attitude or an emotion, but it is an emotion that leads to the exercise of his power on behalf of the needy people with whom he's established a covenant relationship. It's a promise and assurance of future help and fellowship. It's rooted in God himself. In short, it's simply who God is. Like John the Apostle would say in 1 John 4, God is what? God is love. Don't forget it. His love for you is not rooted in you. His, his love for you, his love for us, is rooted in himself, and he's unchanging, and he's, he's made an eternal commitment to his name and to his glory. And that's where our hope lies. He's revealed this. He revealed it to Moses. And throughout the whole Bible, it just keeps getting revealed more and more in, in bigger ways. Seventh, Psalm 103 tells us that God restrains. He restrains. Verse 9 says, He will not always chide or contend or confront, nor will he keep his anger forever. If we're under his mercy, there's a discipline of anger in a sense. We can, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, even in the new covenant. It's not that there's no reason for him to be angry. We all have sin. But he restrains his anger. And his anger will be quenched for some. Not for all. But even those who know nothing of the salvation that comes in Jesus, know nothing about God's anger being quenched in Jesus, no one still has or will ever bear the fullest brunt of God's wrath. His loving kindness is over all his works. Jesus said in Matthew 5, the sun rises on the evil and the good. God gives rain graciously to both the just and the unjust. Paul says in Romans 2, talking about God's patience and why we're not consumed 
by his anger now or yesterday. Paul says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The reason God gives you another day is that you would flee from the wrath to come. The reason he gives you breath is that you might repent and turn to him in faith and be saved and be restored to the God who made you and made you for his glory. Paul goes on to say in Romans 2 that without repentance, we're simply storing up wrath for the day of judgment. It's mercy that he gives you breath, that he gives you rain, that he gives you sunshine, that he gives you food. He gives it so you might repent. And where there isn't repentance, eventually, that will ultimately count against you. But there's a different, a different path. You see verse 10 of, I, of Psalm 103? For those in this covenant, for those who are his, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. What wonderful words. He doesn't deal with us according to how we deal with people. We deal with people according to their sins. We repay evil for evil. Oh, apart from the miracle of his sovereign mercy, we we do. Not him. It's his instinct to not deal with us according to our sins to not repay us according to our iniquities. And again, none of us have been repaid according to our iniquities or ever will be in the fullest. But again, it's not that we don't deserve being dealt with. It's not that we don't deserve repayment for iniquities and rebellion. Don't forget it. Don't forget the benefit of his patience. But how does he restrain his anger? Why doesn't he deal with us according to our sins? Why is he not a repaying kind of God? Well, it's not because he's a pushover. It's not because he's a lazy judge. It's not because he's a good old old boy, and as long as you mean well, he'll let you pass. He doesn't pay us according to our sins because someone else paid for our sins. The New Testament tells the rest of the story of how God can restrain his anger, why God doesn't deal with us according to our sins. The Old Testament gives us principles of his love and promises about one to come. And those realities come together in the New Testament in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His life. In his death. In his death, the Apostle Paul tells us, was a propitiation. That's a big theological word. It's in the Bible, though. It's worth knowing. In Romans 3, Paul says that God put Jesus forth. He sent him. He gave him. As a propitiation by blood. The word propitiation means a quenching of God's wrath. It's not that he didn't have wrath. It's not that he just counted to ten and calmed down. It's not that he ignored justice. It's not that he played loose with his justice bench. Jesus had to die 
that God would be the justifier and just at the same time. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. Jesus had to come so that God would be just and the justifier of those who believe. And it's not just in the New Testament. It was foretold in the Old Testament too. Like in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. We get peace. He got punishment. He took our payment that we might go free. He tasted death that we might have eternal life. He was rejected temporarily by the Father that we might be accepted for all eternity. He restrains his anger, again, not by counting to ten, but by the costly sacrifice of his own dear son. So can the guilty just go free? Yeah, but at a great cost. Don't forget it. Don't forget all of his benefits or any of his benefits. Eighth, Psalm 103 tells us of this benefit that he removes. He removes what? Well, verse 12, look at that first. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In other words, an infinite distance. In these days, before satellite, before cell phones, before the internet, the other side of the world is another world. Might as well be. To say he's removed our sins from us, as the east is from the west, to say he made them disappear. And we know what David only saw in part. God didn't ball up our sins and throw it in some sort of cosmic wastebasket. He hurled them on his son for our salvation. But the point is now that they're gone. They're buried. They're covered. Like Micah 7 says, he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. By the way, do you notice that in Psalm 103, he's still on the topic of forgiveness. He started there, and in a sense, he's really not gotten off it. Oh, he talks about God sustaining, he talks about God healing, he talks about God rescuing from the pit. But really, his central theme is forgiveness, love, his covenant faithfulness, that he restrains his anger, that he removes our sin. And why does he do it? Well, verse 11. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. You want to measure love? You might say, Dad, to your kids, you know how much I love you? And you put your arms out. And they got smaller arms. God made it that way so you can show them. You love them more. They don't know yet how much you love them. You love them this much. And it's like God says here in Psalm 103, you want to know how much I love you? What's the distance from earth to the heavens? Like the next galaxy. What's that distance? That's how much I love you. And he loves us like this because of his steadfast love, his covenant love, his commitment to himself. 
Paul probably had these verses, verse 11 and 12, in mind when he prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, that they would know the breadth east from the west, the length, that they would know the depth and the height of God's love for them in Jesus. So sin has been cast away at an infinite distance. It's no longer a reality for those who know this mercy. But contrasting with that image of sin's distance is the imagery of God's closeness. That's what we see in verse 13 and following. We see the ninth thing in your notes. He cares. He cares. Let's look at the image of God's closeness. Verse 13, it says as a father shows compassion on his children, so does the Lord show compassion to those who fear him. He's tender, he's dear, he's near, he cares, he even has pity. He knows us like a father knows his kid, like a, like a father sees the pain, like a father tries to fix something, to make something better. Now maybe that's a frustrating analogy for you. Maybe your dad wasn't caring, maybe your dad wasn't even there. Well, you have to know that that's not the experience of most folks. Not all fathers are like that. Most dads, though quite imperfect and occasionally frustrated with their kids, they know something, that instinct that's God-given to see hurt and have pity in their kids, to provide for them, to meet their needs, to protect them. What father wouldn't take a punch rather than see his 10-year-old son get punched? But, but even still, the analogy between human parents and God can work the other way, and sometimes it does. In other words, even the best of fathers are nothing like the fatherhood of God. I love this in Isaiah 49, the contrast between a nursing mom and God. God says, can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? That does happen. It's extremely rare that a mom doesn't care about a hungry child that came from her womb. But it's one in a million, one in 500 million. I don't know what the ratio is of moms who know this instinct and those who ignore it, suppress it to this extent that they don't care about a nursing child. But God says, even still, these may forget Yet I will not forget. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's permanent. How dear. How caring. How fatherly. And he knows our weakness. He knows, like verse 14 says, that our frame is just dust. He knows we're like grass. He knows we're like a flower that's pretty for a day and wilts in the sun tomorrow. He knows that of us, and he still cares. We are frail and fleeting, but he's not. And hence, his love is not. In fact, that leads to the last thing. Don't forget, he stays the same. God stays the same. He isn't like us. He isn't like this earth. He isn't like flowers. He stays the same. So verse 17 of Psalm 103 says, 
The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Again, because it's rooted in himself, it's eternal. He's eternal. Don't forget the benefit of his unchangeableness. It said of Jesus, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, you might have noticed that as I read verse 17, I stopped halfway through. I read the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. But it goes on to say that his love is on those who fear him. And then the next verse says it's to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So now this can, this can look scary. This can seem curious. Is this now like a conditional kind of mercy, a conditional kind of love? He's fatherly and compassionate only when we obey him. What does it mean to keep his covenant? How well do we have to keep it? How many of his commandments do we have to perform? And how well? Well, the answer to these questions, again, is found by looking further ahead in God's plan. So through the prophet Jeremiah, still in the Old Testament, God talked about a new covenant. Remember, Psalm 103 says, this is for those who keep his covenant. But listen to Jeremiah 31, where God says, I will make a new covenant. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt. Exodus. That covenant which they broke. Time and time again, even though I was their husband. This is the covenant that I will make. This new covenant goes like this. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. No longer on cold, external tablets of stone out there. But on the heart itself. On your desire box put my desires within you. I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Well, no surprise in the New Testament basically is the new covenant. That's what New Testament means, by the way. Testament is covenant. Really, the whole book of the New Testament The whole half of the Bible called the New Testament is the New Covenant. That's why Hebrews 9 says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. In 1 Timothy 2, it says there's one mediator between God and men. There's one hope to bring them together. There's one hope for forgiveness, the man Christ Jesus, which means Jesus Christ fulfilled the covenant for us. He's our covenant keeper. He's our covenant giver. So we no longer have a breakable covenant. We no longer have this threat. If you keep his covenant, if you do his commandments, the promise to keep the covenant and do the commandments is in the covenant itself, and Jesus fulfilled it for you. We have now a Savior who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We now have one who 
He was tempted in every respect like we are, but he was without sin. So we can draw near, Hebrews 4 says, draw near with confidence to the throne of his grace. He's the one who gave us forgiveness. He's the one who keeps the covenant. He's the one who gives us the desire to do his commandments. He's the one who puts the fear of God in us so that we worship in holy awe and joy. Do you know this mercy? Do you have this salvation? Do you know that your sins are buried or covered or hurled onto Jesus and he paid for them there? Do you know that? Do you believe that Jesus is that only hope? Do you see your need for someone to die in your place? Not just see need for forgiveness, but do you see your need for someone to die on your behalf? I pray you do. Christian, do you feel his love and mercy? Is it merely theoretical and external and it means you won't go to heaven, but it's not relational, it's not intimate? We're supposed to feel intimately his mercy and love and his care. We're to be rejoicing in his loving kindness and his fatherly compassion for us. We're to be praying. Psalm 90, verse 14. Oh Lord, satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love that we might sing for joy and be glad all our days. He saves us not just so that we're forgiven, but that we're restored, that he's our father, that we know who does all this good stuff around us. He saved us so that we wouldn't forget any of his benefits. So Christian, are you fighting against forgetfulness like it's a matter of life and death? None of us are, but we all should. Not blind to his benefits, but on the watch like a coon dog trying to sniff out his benefits and the, the multi-layered, multi-faceted complexity of his gifts and his grace, his glory. Are you preaching to yourself? Like David did, bless the Lord, O my soul. To be resolute like David was, all that's within me. He deserves nothing less in light of this grace, in light of this goodness. Did you happen to notice the word all repeated so much in this psalm, Psalm 104? It pops up nine times. All that's within me, all his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He gives justice for all. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places. All forgiveness, all love, all for you, all for me in Christ, all of life, so that all of creation might bless him. What benefits he's given us. And he's given us the benefit of his word to see this stuff. He's given us eyes to see and minds to think about his benefits. He's given us each other to stir up a remembrance of his benefits He's given us song, he's given us preaching, he's given us prayer to ask for his help. He's also given us 
this new covenant meal, a meal of remembrance to fight against forgetfulness. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25 quotes Jesus celebrating this supper for the very first time, saying to the disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 